Hey everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Battle of the Atom. This is normally the weekly X-Men podcast where we rank every X-Men story from A to Z. I'm Adam. And I'm Zach and Adam. Hey, what's up? Oh, I just wanted to let you know that uh, we're not we're not by ourselves this week. We're not just sitting here talking about random miniseries from 1997 by ourselves. No, in fact, I think we have our most high-profile guest yet on the show. So um, you want to introduce who we have with us today? Yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, You may know him from such classic titles like X-Men and X-Force and, you know, Cable. He's done a lot of stuff. It's uh, Fabian Nicieza. Fabian, how are you doing today? How's it going, guys? Thank you for being here. This is very exciting. My pleasure. So yeah, this is uh this is really cool because I think we have and you know the people who listen to uh, our podcast have really been critically reevaluating and rediscovering uh, '90s X Force and realizing that it's actually super good. Um, okay, <laughs> I think that anybody who was 12 years old back then thought it was super good, but. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if 42-year-olds are rediscovering it again, that's cool. <laughs> no, I think – so for for me, I didn't grow up reading comics in the 90s. So the whole concept of 90s X-Men was incredibly intimidating because there was a lot of books. You were yeah, writing a, a bunch lot. of stuff. There was a lot. Yes, there was. And the interconnectivity actually expanded in that time period quite a bit too. Absolutely. So jumping – Jumping back into it and saying this is, you know, a lot deeper and a lot cooler than, you know, some of the snarky internet commenters of the early 2000s were leading people to believe. I think it's been a really, really exciting time. I think it's been great to kind of jump into some of that stuff. Um, I've all my convention travels that I do um, combined with the actual physical product that gets sent to me by marvel when they do the reprint collections um it really makes me realize that that a lot of this this particular time period is is having a little bit of a a, a renaissance maybe that's not the right word but a, an upsurge in interest because if you were 12 or to 16 when you originally read it you're like between you know 38 and 42 now or whatever and and you're rekindling with the content in a different way. I I meet lots of people who come up to me and say, I was 12 years old when I read this comic and I want you to meet my son. He's 12 years old now. And I'm trying to get him to read this stuff. Um, So, so, you know, it feels like in a time when, when the X books had for quite a while kind of been neglected a little bit, I, I think by Marvel, um, it, a lot of readers especially connect very fondly to a time period when everyone thought it was the most important thing on the planet earth. <laughs> well, and I can say from my personal experience that I'm a little bit older than Zach. 
I actually did grow up reading these. Um, so I, I kind of fit into that description that you just described. And uh, I, I think these books meant a lot to me growing up. Um, I think one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about is kind of uh, how you feel about your legacy. Um, I wanted to start by asking, you know, when you jumped onto New Mutants, you were not only picking up after Simonson left, but this was really a time period when a lot of the artists were calling the shots. So I'm curious, you know, as you transitioned from New Mutants to X-Force, at, at what point did you feel like you were being handed the reins of the X universe um, so that you you had the control on the books? Was there a um, moment like that? Uh, yeah, the, the moment was actually once Rob and Jim and Wills finally left mm -hmm. officially once and for all <laughs> to go start exclusively doing their image stuff. Mm -hmm. um, the time period between the announcement that they would be doing this and the actual departing was several months, which means several issues, um, which meant for a lot of us both the understanding that we would just jump right in and take over once they were done combined with the frustration that it just kept kind of dragging out a little bit. Um, so anytime, like, I guess it was like between X force six and 13, it, it was almost all, a uh, uh, well, when is it going to be time? When are you done? Kind of thing. Uh, I, I can't totally speak to the X books, because that was its own little thing going on because Chris Claremont had left and I thought I was going to be asked to script the, 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 at least one of the books. Um, and, and, and Bob Harris ended up asking John Byrne to script both. And that became a problem in and of itself because of all the scheduling. Mm -hmm. So all I know is that with issue, Bob asked me to write issues 12 and 13 of X-Men as almost inventory stories in a way, like almost like scheduled fillings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and then I still to this day don't recall Bob ever officially offering me X-Men. It was just an expectation that I was just going to keep <laughs> writing it. So I just kept writing it. Um, and, and part of it was because we knew that we had a major crossover storyline already in the, in the publishing program budget that was always in place in the budget. Um, the image guys actually knew that, which might be one reason why they dragged their feet as long as they did, because either they were considering trying to have their cake and eat it too and participate in some capacity in the crossover, because they knew it was going to make a lot of money um, and get a lot of attention, and or they thought that the longer they dragged their feet, the more it would hurt us in getting it out there and having it be good, which would only benefit them with their image launch. I, I not, not having talked to any of them about any of this stuff, it's all conjecture on my part. I could see either or both being the case. Um, so we jumped into Executioner's Song with very, very little advance notice, very little planning time. We put it together really quickly. I did a majority of the work in structuring that whole storyline. Uh, the artists were in place because we knew who we wanted to get to re to replace everybody. Um, so so we kind of hit the ground running. Um, and, and, you know, so anything pre-image departure was its own little kind of, you know, a combination, incredible excitement and chaos. <laughs> um, anything after the image guys departed um, was a separate kind of a... a uh, dynamic uh so so there to me it's two different time periods for me hmm. um 
So, so all the stuff with New Mutants flowing into X-Force, I was just scripting the book. So I didn't worry that much about anything. Uh, scripting off of somebody else's plots usually is pretty easy. Um, so it wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't something I had to worry about that much. When the pages showed up, usually incredibly late, I scripted them, I handed them in, and that was it. Mm-hmm. If the editor liked them, he liked them. If the editor didn't like them, he didn't like them. I was already writing two books a month for Marvel. Uh, Outside the X world, I was writing Alpha Flight and New and uh, New Warriors, and, and I had a full time job at Marvel as an uh, advertising manager still at that time. Oh, then really? I moved over to be an editor at Marvel, so mm-hmm. I had plenty of a full plate with or without New Mutants slash X Force scripting responsibilities. You know, uh, so so I didn't I didn't I didn't I didn't worry about it that much. Other than other than the the, the difficult challenges of the schedule, I didn't worry about it that much. Well, I, I think that's interesting. That's something that I know I wanted to touch on a bit. So you had that background, especially as the advertising manager at what was commercially a fairly successful time at Marvel. So do you think that informed fairly, <laughs> fairly successful? I mean, fairly <laughs> the book, the book sold more the books between 1998 and 1994, the books sold more than they had for the company since the early 1940s. So it, it was a very fairly successful time period <laughs> for the company. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And no, no intention of understating that, but no, it's quite all right. I, I, I love destroying people's sense of history. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, at, at that time, do you think that informed how you were approaching that? Or how did you how did you balance the creative side with the, you know, the commercial aspects of, you know, what was your life at the time? Well, I, I, I've always um, I've always been pretty good at being able to switch hats. I always had my business hat and my creator hat. And, um, and I always would, would flip them back and forth depending on the situation. So I, I, one minute I could be arguing for something regarding creators' rights or, 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 or you know, creators improving someone's page rate or, or treating someone better, whatever. Um, and, the other, and the next minute I could be sitting there talking about how to try to, uh, you know, excrete as much blood out of this rock as we possibly can for the for the <laughs> company or the book to make a profit. You know, um, and and I it, it, I guess it could be considered a little schizophrenic, but I, I never I never thought of it that way personally because I, I always I don't know I, I was an advertising major in college and and I always had a mentality that this was commercial art and both sides of that equation are equally important. Um, so for me, comic books were always a, a, a creative product that, that you had to sell. You needed to sell it because the company needed to make money so that I can continue to make the creative product. And as a writer, I wanted to sell because it's going to, it's going to make me more money, number one. But number two, it, it, the more it sells, the more it's validating the, the, whatever work it is I'm putting into it, creatively speaking. You know, um, because no matter what, ultimately, 
everything is subjectively qualitative, but you cannot question quantitative, you know? So if a book is selling 500,000 copies, I could care less whether you think it's good or not. Personally, as an individual, it's selling 500,000 copies. You know what I mean? (laughs) So, so I I always, I always was able to, to go back and forth between the two pretty easily. I, I still can to this day. Um, I feel like, you know, we're, we're hearkening back to this age of printing comics and kind of like printing money, uh, essentially for some of these characters. Um, a huge part of that was cable. Um, I'm personally a huge fan of the blood and metal two issues. Um, I love the Capallo run that you did, uh, with, uh, with Greg on, uh, X-Force, um, cable, you know, historically has like one of the most convoluted backstories of any character in comics. You were responsible not only for X-Force, but then Blood and, Me- uh, Blood and Metal. And then Cable got his own solo series, too, to, you know, sort of add on to the, the, the popularity of the character. Uh, how did you feel your way through the early days of that character and trying to figure out what the heck his backstory was supposed to be? Mm. I feel I, I, I did it badly. That's how I feel I oh, did really? it. Um, okay. I, I, I was never happy. I, I was happy with Blood and Metal uh, because I loved working with JR. And that was a bit of a rush job because Rob was originally going to do that miniseries, but he never put anything down on paper. So we had no guidelines to go by. So I, I didn't have anything on paper that gave me any real indication of Rob's definitive conceptions for what he wanted out of cable's past he had said different things but none of it was was you know concretized in in print mm-hmm. um the the other com, com, complexity to the character is that the whole thing about him being scott and gene's son was really imposed on us editorially it was not rob's original idea or his original intent he went along with it because a the editor really wanted to do this and be in his own gut. He thought it was an interesting idea that was worth exploring. Um, I inherited all of that without any real understanding of how to take all of these different pieces of clay and try to put it together into something that, that worked. Um, if you notice the blood and metal miniseries is really just spinning wheels. It's a, it's a fun story and I really enjoy doing it. And we reveal some things about Cable's past and we reveal some things about Cable's future, but none of it is really a definitive description of, of his origins. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, Part of that is because I wasn't sure what the hell I was going to do with him. The other part of it is that the editor was always desperately terrified of solving any mystery because he was always afraid that if you solve the mystery, the readers would lose interest. So unfortunately that meant that not only could you never solve the mystery you had, but six other mysteries were piled on top of the one you already had, (laughs) which further complicated your long form storytelling. It, it, It was, it was something that was inherent to our initial interactions and working together on these books that exacerbated itself to the point where it's what led me year, you know, three, four years later to get fired from X-Force and quit X-Men because I I just had had enough of that. It's not how I like to work. It's not how I do. It's not how I think I do my best work. So it was problematic. I I did not want to do a monthly cable series right after the, the blood and metal book. I really wanted to give it a little bit of breathing space. I wanted him to come back to X-Force and then spin it spin a monthly book off of a storyline in Mm x-force but 
because so much of what we were doing back then was was driven by the budget and the budgetary expectations that were being placed on us a monthly cable comic had already been scheduled for that quarter of that publishing year and they did not want to push it back another year or another eight months or six months even so that's one reason why you have such a hodgepodge of a monthly launch where the character is trapped in the future and he hasn't come back to x-force yet and the readers don't know what the hell's going on so <laughs> i i wasn't happy with the x-force book i mean look, i quit i quit the book like what was it issue eight or nine or seven i don't know i quit the book fairly quickly because i really wasn't happy with it um the 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 executioner song storyline was another great indication of how editorial would constantly change its mind, which flummoxed your ability to, to really navigate your long form storytelling. Because in that it's pretty clear that I said strife is Scott mm -hmm. and Gene's son and cable is the clone. And I thought that was incredibly interesting for the character of cable long moving forward in the, you know, forward, how interesting that would be for him to always have to deal with the, the reality of that, you know, and, and it, I think it was Scott and Bob Labdell and Bob who, who continued to talk behind my back about, about Scott, Scott not liking that because he thought it reflected so badly on Scott and Gene. And I'm like, what difference would it make to, how does that reflect badly on Scott and Gene? The babies raised in the future, they have nothing to do with it, yeah. which is what ended up leading to that Cyclops and Phoenix <laughs> miniseries, which I don't think I read for two, three years after it, for, it came out because I hated it so much. Um, and, and I hated the idea that you're trying to redeem something that didn't necessarily need to be redeemed in such a forced way. Um, and, and, and I also hated the fact that, that that was a point where everybody's fingers were trying to stick in everybody else's pie. I was the only person who really tried very hard not to stick his fingers in anyone else's pie. I really didn't because I had plenty of my own pies to deal with. I had a family and your warriors title to deal with. I was doing nomad. So, it, you know, I had not, I did not have much interest in sticking my fingers into Excalibur or sticking my finger into Scott's book, you know, mm -hmm. but, but other people, namely Scott wanted to stick his fingers in every single pie possible. Um, and, and, and as a result, you end up having decisions made for the characters you're working on on a monthly basis, which aren't even decisions that you might agree with, you know, uh, much less have an opportunity to contribute to. Um, so, so all of that stuff just became a percolating mess. Um, and, and it was one of the reasons why I quit the cable book, because it, it, I did not feel that it was a character I was ever going to be given an opportunity to do right. And I had not I felt I had not done him right to that point. Um, conversely, luckily, I got a 50 issue run mm -hmm. of Cable and Deadpool in 2004. And to me, that's the definitive Cable. I don't need to write Cable again. I would love to, but I don't need to because I feel I said as much as I needed to say about who this man is in those 50 issues, you know, and there's always running jokes like Gail Simone on Twitter is always saying she doesn't get cable. And I'm saying, you know, if you, if you read 50 issues of cable and Deadpool and you don't get cable, that problem's not with me. The problem's with you, <laughs> you know, because, because in my opinion, having reread that work, it, it's all there. You know, who this man is, is all there. Yeah. I think for, I think for a lot of people uh, that became kind of the definitive thing for cable and for Deadpool. I mean, it's one of the things that started him back up on this path that he is now this you know world recognized character which 
has got to be nuts. Yeah, I haven't read anything that they've done after I, I after the book got canceled. To be honest with you, well, I don't I'm, have I'm a speaking, clue. I'm speaking more in terms of you know global media and the fact that there is multiple Deadpool movies that have made oh, gobs oh, okay. and gobs yeah, of yeah. money. And you know, while he was a character since you know '98 and or New Mutants '98 and you know a big popular one at that point, I I honestly think that when Cable and Deadpool started getting going, that's when this kind of revitalization pushing him back into this mainstream and getting him primed for where he is now really started yeah it did and it's a combination of a lot of factors i mean the the fact that the book survived at a low sales level but it survived really helped reclaim both characters who who you know gone through quite a bit of editorial transitioning and creative transitioning and and the reason they decided to do the book in the first place and the reason they decided to ask me to do it was because they wanted someone who might be able to get back to the dna of both of these characters and 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 basically uh, fix is the wrong word but basically reestablish who they should be mm-hmm. um and, and and I think I did that. I, I'm really proud of that book. I'm really proud of what it was. Um, and and I'm and I also know that it had a really loyal fan base that interacted with the book at a much greater level than than readers were interacting with other Mar- Marvel titles. I mean, for crying out loud, we won we won Wizard Magazine Award Best Letter Page of the month of the of the, <laughs> of the industry. Um, but that that's a testament to fan engagement. And this was when a lot of social media was really starting to go take an uptick that's when youtube was really starting to 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 prosper and that's when twitter was really starting to build um and and you could actually go back and go to like the youtube videos of the cosplayers at conventions and watch their 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 viewer their views on the on those youtube videos started to go up exponentially year by year starting in like 2008 2009 you, you that's pre the deadpool movie you know mm-hmm. that, yeah. that that's that's post the horrific wolverine origins movie which should have really hurt the character mm. but it didn't it didn't hurt him in the least in terms of publishing and in terms of social media penetration um, those YouTube cosplay videos went from 40,000 unique visits and, and we're looking at them going, when I was doing Cable and Deadpool, we're going, wow, that's, that's more people looking at this cosplay guy dancing around a convention than there are reading the comic, you know? <laughs> and, and, and then three years later, they're at like 4 million views and you're like, wow. And now they're at like 20, 30 million views, you know, wow. that, that, that means that the character's penetrating beyond the, the print format. Um, and the character in many ways became a social media convention that, that extrapolated itself without necessarily a top selling comic book, um, you know, and without even, you know, much, much mainstream media. There was no movie between 2010 and 2016. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. Um, there was no TV show. There was none of that. It was all happening on social media. Um, and that's really what built that's really what built. Deadpool to the point where it was primed when the movie came out because it was already a huge amount of of teenagers and early 20-somethings who were familiar with this character and excited about how that would translate to film, you know? Yeah, it's definitely more a, a result of, you know, fans reacting when that test footage comes out, you know, and building upon that, that fan reaction. Um, you know, 
you talking about your run on cable and Deadpool, um, you have revisited these characters uh, within the last couple of years. Uh, you did split second, um, which kind of was a reset again for cable, especially yeah. they um, keep calling me up when they want, yeah. when they want a techno babble reason for <laughs> how, how to fix a character. And then they don't hire me again because they complain that all I do is techno babble stuff. <laughs> well, and then we, we just recently saw uh, you did a couple, uh, you know, very short uh, thing for the domino annual, which was cool. Um, do you feel a need, you know, we've seen, uh, writers like Claremont and Simonson come back and do, you know, forever, uh, style books where they kind of pick up from old continuity. Mm. Do you still feel a need to revisit any of these eras or never? I would never do a book like that. Okay. I I would never, I'm a huge, huge proponent of the only thing that exists is what saw print. Mm. Um, what I thought of doing, what I had in mind to do, what I wanted to do, none of that matters at all. Zero. Unless I get hired tomorrow to do another monthly Cable and Deadpool book, I, I'm not going to bother worrying about any of the ideas I had in my notebooks or on paper for what to do after issue 50, which weren't that many, quite frankly, because we were we were always operating under the the guillotine of cancellation. So every six months we could have been had our heads chopped off. So I, I, I was the anti-Fabian. I did not think 75 issues in advance. I just did it six issues at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't worry that much about what was going to be the next arc until I knew we were going to get another arc. Um, one of my pitfalls, one of my strengths as a writer break, you know, breaking in originally was also one of my pitfalls is that I, I would, I would, think too long term um the last time i did that in comics was when i wrote red robin and and, and i got new 52 so <laughs> i should have learned my lesson way before that but that's that that was the final lesson i'm never going to do it again i'm not going to worry about 75 issues of a character's development anymore because the industry's not built that way anymore so why bother yeah i think that's fair Uh, that's that's interesting though it does make this next question just a tiny bit awkward go for it oh i'm believe me i'm very excited about this one uh one character (laughs) from your time on x-force that's become very memorable to a lot of fans and i think a lot of people is adam x the extreme the third Summers brother to a huge number of people, but well, not just to a huge number of people. He is the third Summers brother. So that's besides the point. <laughs> Remember what I said about every only what appears in print counts. It did appear in print in Captain Marvel number three. <laughs> that's that's wow. fantastic. I I I know that he appeared in those things. I have not been able to track down those Captain Marvels because they aren't on that Marvel Unlimited app. And oh, okay. Yeah, Captain Marvel number three. It was my final fu to the X universe. Um, my it was it was me giving the middle finger to, to Bob. Um, the the I, it's basically Captain Marvel, Eric the Red, and 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 extreme guest stars. And and I pretty much flat out say that 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 he's the you know he's the son of 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 Daken. Um, and, and I strongly hint that, that, you know, also he's got the genetic biology of Catherine Summers. Um, it, it, it was a, it's a great question because it's just emblematic of the, of the frustrations and problems I had in, in working for that office at that time. I come up with an idea that the editor loves. 
I, I do a breakdown of the character and who he's going to be. I have, uh, I do a, a draw, I draw a design for him. And then Jeff Johnson really, really cleans it and makes it look much better for the trading card. And editor approves and likes all of it. Likes how I'm introducing him. I, uh, the plan all along was to introduce him more bombastically than he's going to be. Because then once you reveal his real story, you realize what what's going on behind the curtain you know the 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 excessive bombast is part of an act on his part in many ways and and i i have a whole mini series i want to do and jeff johnson wants to draw it and the editor never gives it a green light and never lets me develop it and, and never lets me continue but he lets me continue to sow the seeds but he doesn't let me tell the story and, and, and I, you know, and I was like, I just gave up. I said, all right, I'm, f-, I said, I'm a few, I'm done. Forget it. You know? Um, and, and it was ridiculous because it was all agreed upon from its initial inception. It wasn't a secret. It wasn't a mystery internally. We knew what it was and we knew he knew what I wanted it to be and how I wanted it to work. I mean, in many ways he would have been like the Luke Skywalker of the Shi'ar <laughs> empire, you know? Um, and I never got the opportunity to do it. And and it was always a frustration because I think that I think that the story I wanted to tell was much, much better than the stories I did tell with the character. Um, but 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 it makes no difference because it never appeared in print. So all you really get is, you know, people making fun of backwards caps and and, and cutting people to oxygenate their blood, which I'm sorry is still a really freaking cool power. Um, <laughs> and, and that's what that's what it ends up becoming long term. That's what the view becomes long term. Mm-hmm. And then another generation of Marvel editors and writers come aboard and not a single one of them know anything about the character other than what they see in print and what they see in print is a little excessive and stupid. So they don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. They don't bother to ask, what did you have in mind? And, and with the hubris and arrogance of most, most writers in comics, they'll say, I'm just going to create my own new story and create my own new characters. And we'll say, this is the third summer's brother. That'll solve that dangling plot thread. No, it doesn't solve it at all. If anything, it just overly complicates it, you know? Um, now there's four of them. Yeah, I don't. I never. There's four of them. I guess. I don't. I never read the Vulcan stuff. I never read that at all. I, I don't think I'm ever going yeah, that's, to. That's for the um, best. You're, you're fine. I, I never. I, so I don't know anything about it uh, other than that they did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my attitude is, well, that's nice that they did it. I, I'm glad that they came up with a fourth brother. <laughs> no, that's that's great. I mean, I, I I like what you're saying there, especially because you know as you get deeper into some of the Admech stuff, like especially. What is it? Adjectiveless X-Men 39, the story where he's uh, out in Alaska with mm-hmm. uh, Scott's grandparents. Well, that's a great issue. It's a, I like that one. Well, I guess his grandparents. Yeah, yeah it's his it's, grandparents. It adds a no, lot of depth it's his great to the character. That, technically. I'm sorry. No, his grandparents. He's a brother. He's a brother, not a son. We got enough of those going around in the future anyway. <laughs> <laughs> lose track of all these little summers running around. Are you, are you my own uncle? <laughs> I mean, look, that's that's a pretty uh, emblematic X-Men sentence right mm-hmm. there. That's very true for some people. But no, I, I think it shows a lot of... Uncle with a K, though, because that would be really early 90s. <laughs> <laughs> no, that shows, uh, that shows a lot of depth that I think char- or, you know, some people miss from the character that would have been interesting to see explored more. Yeah. 
Well, um, yeah, there was a lot of, I think there was a lot of missed opportunities there. There was a lot of stuff that, that had I, had I been given the chance, I think uh, could have developed into interesting stories told in interesting ways, but it just was, it wasn't the working methodology of the editor and it wasn't the working method methodology of the other writer, Scott. And ultimately, the, ultimately they, they quote unquote win because they should win. That they should do the books the way they're most comfortable doing. Uh, if I'm not comfortable doing the books that way, I should stop doing them. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they didn't. Bob didn't want to fire me because the books were still selling really, really well, and I'm in the office and I'm his friend, and 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 the readers are still positive about the the material we're doing. Um, but but ultimately, making my life miserable every single month is not a good solution to the problem. So it's up to right. me to quit. So it's on me, not on anyone else. I mean, him firing me off X-Force, I'll never understand because he never explained to me why and I'll never get it. So uh, that one, that one's beyond me. As far as X-Men is concerned, uh, it was it's incumbent on me to walk in and say I quit. Um, and, and I didn't do it for a, probably a year or more longer than I wanted to do it because the money was too good. The books were selling too well. The, you know, the royalties were still really, really good. And I figured I don't have kids yet, but I'm paying for their college education one day. Sure. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and as long as I can tolerate it, I will tolerate it. Um, it's not, it's not creatively noble, but it's, it was certainly financially astute. Um, and, and, but it did get to the point where I just couldn't deal with it anymore. And that's when I quit. So whatever that was, issue 45, it was that I quit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I walked away and I was done. That was it. So, but never really, that's it because you end up writing the characters again. You end yeah. up doing stuff later. You know, I, I got offered gambit. I, I quit a claim and walked out the door of a claim publishing in 1998 in August of 1998. I forget what day it was. It was a Friday and I leave the office and I make a couple calls telling people that I'd quit. And, and and on Monday, I get a call from Mark Powers, who is an editor at Marvel, offering me the Gambit monthly book. So before I even had a chance to figure out what I wanted to do post the claim, I started writing monthly comics again, uh, which in hindsight, I, maybe I shouldn't have. Maybe I should have tried. Uh, I would have been better off doing something other than that. Um, but 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 that's that's what happened. So I'm right back into the world of X again, you know, which I never <laughs> planned. Never. I never went out of my way to ask for that at all. You know, that, mm-hmm. that was offered to me. Um, so, so I, I did it, but I also tried to keep Gambit apart from the X-Men as much as I could. Mm-hmm. Now, Adam X is kind of like, you know, very deep cut for some X-Men fans, but not if you're a nineties kid, but for contemporary X-Men fans. Um, now Zach, you wanted to ask like an extreme deep cut question, right? I did. <laughs> what you this guys is... call deep cut. I used to call Tuesday. Okay. <laughs> Just so you... <laughs> so this is this is the one i say one super nerdy in a you know conversation about adam x but (laughs) uh the most esoteric fanboy question i could come up with speaking of your gambit run you did a call it series call it a comic called gambit the hunt for the tomorrow stone that was published on AOL.com yep. as part of Marvel's Cyber Comics, and yep. it has been lost forever. Yep. What the heck was that, man? Um, no one knows, and it's killing me. It, it, I often do get confused between that story and the wizard half issue as well, okay? 
So I, I, I don't want to confuse the two stories. I think that the Gambit AOL story involved those characters that Labdell had come up with, uh, Sprat and this little cave girl, this little blonde The, the ones that they made uh, that they said, you know, they will never make action figures out of these. And then a month later, they made action yeah, figures like, out of yeah. them. It involved her and her origins. Um, and... and uh, I don't remember much else about it, to tell you the truth right now. I, I, that's so many computers ago that I don't even have the data. Um, I know I don't keep hard copies of stuff. The plot or the script may be in a, in a hard disk somewhere that, that we used to use on the, the laptops, um, but I don't know. You, that's not even as deep a cut as it could be because that's a comic that just kind of got lost in time. I... I I have no idea why there's no digital archive of it at all. I really don't. Um, but but it wouldn't have been up to me to keep it. Um, it sure, it obviously, pro- yeah. It probably existed on an old laptop. I had, you know, anytime I upgraded the model, every few years I upgrade my laptop. But I don't think I kept the older ones. Although well, it's only been 20 years. There may be a box in the basement that has the laptop in it. I just don't know. Um the deepest cut of all Gambit wise is not even that. You think it's that, but you don't even know what the deepest cut of Gambit is. Um, I would love to know what the deepest cut of Gambit is. Now deepest, I'm incredibly the deepest intrigued. Cut of Gambit is that I was hired by Byron Price Publishing to do a Gambit novel. They had a mar- they had a deal with Marvel licensing to do um, to do books on the Marvel characters. I was 275 pages into my first novel. And it would have been about a 600-page manuscript because it was a big book, and they approved a big book. The whole thing was outlined and approved. It was all in continuity. I was actually going to tell a story that was going to impact the comic book and, and all that stuff. Um, and, and Marvel pulled the licensing oh. deal and killed it. And I got a kill fee for the work I had done, but the book never saw print. and never was even finished, quite frankly. <laughs> The totality of that manuscript and that outline exists on a single, um, a single hard disk. You know, and they're not floppy disks. You know, the the those little plastic <laughs> ones that had the little metal tabs on yeah. them, the 3M ones. Yep, that's oh where it God. exists. But I don't have a laptop that can currently accommodate those disks, so I would have to get it transcribed, or, or I would have to get take it to a, an IT place wow. to do that. You know. Um, that's the only place that manuscript exists, and I have not looked at it in 15, 16 years. Um, it was the early aughts. It was like 2003 or 2002, something like Holy that. Holy cow. Um, and, and I haven't looked at it in that long, and I probably would hate it if I read it now because I would cringe because I, I always cringe at my own prose, um, attempts at prose, I should say. Um, but, but it does exist, and Gambit fans would have gone berserk for it because it was all about his teenage years and his childhood, and it was a present past tense storyline, and we fleshed out all these interactions and relationships between all the guilds and all the clans and all this stuff. Um, it, it, was, it, was, it was a deep cut for Gambit, I feel like for sure. uh, we need to send you a disk drive. <laughs> yeah. I want to read this thing. <laughs> I know. I think it. I think it. And my problem is that I'm sure that the book is so poorly written that it plays out a hell of a lot better as a story than it would as as a real as okay. a real read. All right. <laughs> um, 
So I know we have uh, some Twitter questions, Zach, but um, since we're talking about computers, I thought this might be a good opportunity. Um, I know that Zach and I have both checked out the new book you're working on for Webtoon called Outrage. Good move, guys. Very smart to, to do that in anticipation <laughs> um, of the podcast. <laughs> I, I'm definitely enjoying it. It's a really interesting take on you know our, our digital social media frontier right now. Um, how, how are you pitching this to, to new fans to get them to read? Uh, he's the Deadpool of the internet, okay. I guess. Um, I, I just, I just pitched them as outrages, the bully who bullies the bullies on the internet. But what happens then if the bully who bullies on the internet is mm. also a bully? Um, <laughs> so the idea, the idea that, that I had for this is that you think it's, it's one thing, but it's going to take a bit of a turn. I hope in the second half of the story. It's a 26-chapter storyline, and we're only up to chapter 8. Um, the, the first half of the storyline is who is outrage, um, but the second half of the storyline is going to be a little bit more of why is outrage. Mm. And, and if we get another season, the status quo shifts pretty dramatically into why are we all outraged. So the whole theme of, the whole theme of outrage among us is what I'm trying to explore more so than a singular okay. character. Um, and, 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 um, I can't get to all of that stuff until I've established the singular character as the lightning rod through which the story starts to unfold, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, so we're at a point now in the story where the FBI is already investigating what's going on and they're going to start narrowing down who the potential suspects are. And then they're going to start interrogating the potential suspects. Then we're going to find out who's behind outrage and that has its own complications. And, and then we're going to see it take a slight turn, um, from that because the expectations of, of who outrage is, uh, in the real world versus what outrage is in the digital world are going to become two different things. Um, and that, that, that's where we start to, to explore the re the kind of like the totality of this. Is it us in our heart and soul and our fingertips, or is it almost something that's existing in electronically, within within between us you know what i mean with between our laptops and our phones and you know and all that stuff so so the, the, what i'm going to try to get at is that there's there's a place for outrage everywhere both in our hearts <laughs> and in our electromagnetic sphere that was a, that was a pretty um, solid pitch so, i like that so, uh, and so far yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to paint the world as a very very beautiful hateful place. <laughs> and and so far I've been reading it for free. I think people can get the webtoon app and and they can just they can read it, right? Yep. The webtoon app or webtoon.com and it's always going to be for well, I can't say always, but the business model has been free and it will continue to be free as long as they their business model is driven by advertising revenue and as far as I know they do very very well with that. Um the more people have already read the outrage comic I've done to eight chapters equals basically mm -hmm. two issues. Uh, more people have read these two issues of outrage on webtoon than have read any single comic or two comics that I've written in wow. over 15 years. Wow. Um, so, so the numbers, the numbers are, are, are stronger than print because the amount of subscribers and, and users they have on their 
platform are wow. ginormous because it is a worldwide platform. It is a mm-hmm. Korean publisher. Uh, the majority of their audience is Asian teenage girls, you know, and, and many of them are checking out Outrage because they see creator of Deadpool. So they're curious, you know, um, but but I'm very happy with exploring this storyline through this platform. I think it's it's a really appropriate and fun cool. way to take it. No, it's it's definitely been an enjoyable uh, enjoyable experience reading it so far. And for people who are listening to this, if you just swipe on over to the episode notes for uh, this episode, there's going to be a link to it right there. So you know, jump on oh, over thank and you. check it out. Appreciate that. At, before we wrap up, we did put out a call for some Twitter questions uh, for you, and I'll tell you, a lot of people have a lot of opinions on Twitter, as I'm sure uh, doing outrage you have found out. Mm, really they do people have opinions i'm sure 90 percent of them are informed (laughs) opinions too (laughs) there's some but we uh we got a couple of these questions that we wanted to kind of rapid fire run by you so coming to us from at ben thomas belser he wants to know about the nickname shatty buns where that came from and kind of i think why (laughs) Um, pretty, I'm pretty sure Farrell is the one who came up with that. Um, not me. It was her. Um, and, and why? Because because Farrell was a sarcastic city <laughs> biatch and she would want to annoy everyone she could. And that would be a way she thought of trying to annoy him. That's that's great. Shaddy Buns is cute. That's a really cute oh, nickname, though. I like that, Shaddy. I forgot all Shaddy about Shaddy Buns. Shaddy stuck around for a shocking amount mm-hmm. of time we've There's got nothing wrong with shatty buns there's no i do not need to justify it or defend myself on shatty <laughs> buns at all it's perfect we're big fans it's <laughs> that's <fine>. great <laughs> now speaking of shatty buns world's number one shatterstar fan at genetic ghost asks are there any stories you wanted to tell in your original x-force run that you couldn't or just didn't have time for uh, yeah, there were lots. Uh, unfortunately, for the biggest Shatterstar fan in the world, not many of them involved Shatterstar because I couldn't <laughs> stand the character. Um, I was thrilled when 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 he met a helicopter blade in Deadpool Two. Um, it was the best handling of Shatterstar I've ever seen in my life. Um, I I really actually you know joking aside, um, I, I really would have liked to have had the opportunity to explore that character's evolution. Uh, in terms of his coming to understand his own sexuality and 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 human sexual nature um and and how interpersonal relationships mm-hmm. worked mm-hmm. or didn't work uh because I was just starting to get to the point where I was beginning to humanize him that I got fired from the book. And, and that's a real frustration because I'd gotten so bored of writing him as a testosterone, two bladed tough guy. It just bored the living out of me that I was really happy to start to explore new aspects of the character. And I never got a chance to, you know, that, that, and I would like to have. Now that's, that's interesting. Now out of curiosity, were you, you know, the way they ended up going with it was putting him in a relationship with Richter. And that's been a pretty long standing thing. And there was, you know, some seeds of a, you know, very close friendship of them planted in your run. But was that the direction you were heading with it or? No, no, the, 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 actually the direction I was planning was that in, in Shatterstar's, as Richter's trying to help him understand human relations and interaction his his misunderstanding of that would have led shatterstar 
to fall in love with Richter and not understand why Richter didn't love him back the same way because Richter was heterosexual when I was writing Richter, right. you know? Um, and, and I thought that was, uh, uh, that was an interesting exploration of, of the, all of those themes, you know? Um, Shatterstar was, was not necessarily homosexual. He was not heterosexual. He was not bisexual. He was asexual and had to come to understand what his sexuality could be or would be and, and i didn't i had not come on any kind of a landing point not the least of which is don't forget guys this is still mid 90s right. it's still comics code approved stuff you're only going to be allowed to do certain things back then with marvel you know you had to be a little slyer or a little subtler about some of the things you were going to try to do sure. um you know i i had already had a giant giant kerfuffle with uh, the higher ups of not not even the higher ups of marvel the higher ups at Perlman's group who owned Marvel because I wanted to make Nomad HIV positive and that turned into a pretty big thing um, and I wasn't allowed to do it. So the, the, the horrificness of how they had North Star come out as gay, notwithstanding, we still had to tread carefully around a lot of those issues mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone likes to uh, apply... 2018 standards and expectations and norms to 1994 and it doesn't life doesn't work that way reality doesn't work that way you know so so i i would have had to have tread lightly on any of this stuff that we're talking about anyway yeah, that's fair. you know i think we got just a couple more that we're gonna toss your way there uh so you know at mojo's work on twitter asks can we talk about Rainfire or if any of the Mutant Liberation Front were poised for a breakout moment? Uh, no, that falls into what sees print is what sees print. Um, <laughs> I, I, I had a solution to all the Rainfire stuff. I had a lot I wanted to do with the Mutant Liberation Front, but it was not to be. What I really wish had seen print was my original script for X-Factor Annual 3, that I did with the fantastic late Mike Waringo. Um, my original script for that annual was a hundred times better than what saw print, but editorial saw fit to stick all 15 of their digits into the pie. Um, and, and, and I think that annual suffered greatly as a result of it. Um, but, but my plans for, for mutant liberation front and, and for Danny, especially were, were going to get rougher, uglier and tougher for all of them. Um, you know, but it was not to be. Classic Xbooks asks, how do you feel about this second renaissance of, you know, your early X-Force characters like, you know, Shatterstar? Um, I think it's all cyclical. I think everything in comics is very cyclical. It, it doesn't surprise me in the least. The creators who are doing the work now are in their mid to late 30s, which means they were in middle school and high school when this stuff came out. And, and they, they, they're excited at the opportunity to put their own imprint on the stuff they read when they were younger. It's really no different than me getting an opportunity to to write stuff that I read when I was younger. You know, I, I, I took on the Captain Marvel monthly book because I loved Jim Starlin's Captain Marvel and I would have killed to have gotten a chance to write Avengers monthly, um, and, you know, and, and but I didn't get a chance to do that. I only got to write Avengers a little bit, but that was my book growing up. So, you know, it, it's not surprising to me in the least that, that that it's been a 25 year cycle. So it's popular and successful for five to eight years. It it's kind of dormant or ignored or abused or, or 
thought badly of for a five to 10 year cycle, which is exactly what Marvel did in the aughts. I never have seen a company belittle their own publishing history as much as Marvel did in the early aughts uh, to to late aughts, um, which was ridiculous to me because it made no sense. They were still selling fricking trade paperbacks of everything they were making fun of. Um, So, so now here we are into the late, late teens and, and the resurgence is looking back to that stuff. Um, also there's a resurgence, it seems at Marvel of, of, uh, focus and attention on the X books, uh, not surprising because of the deal with, with Fox and Disney, uh, pulling, you know, pull, pull, uh, easing up the reins on some of those, those constrictions or restrictions or whatever they were in place as a freelancer. I don't even know any reality of that. I just assume the reality based on obvious evidence. Um, so, so, so it's not surprising that, that a loosening of those reins means a renewed sense of editorial enthusiasm for trying to approach these characters and these books again. Um, and, and you've seen that. I mean, Jordan's a, an excellent editor, Jordan White. He comes off of a long run on, on doing phenomenal work and making Deadpool a, a self-franchise of books, um, and now he he assumes responsibility on the X books, and he's approaching it in a very smart editorial fashion. So it's not surprising to me to see those kinds of things happening. I mean, the thought of a Shatterstar book, even written by as good a writer as Tim Seeley, does nothing to enthuse me, but I'm hopeful <laughs> that it's entertaining for the people who are curious or interested in it. Not that's. That's uh, that's great to hear. Well, Fabian, this has been a fantastic, fantastic conversation. Uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you uh, online? I am always easily findable on Twitter at Fabian Nisiesa, my first name and last name together. Uh, you can get me on Facebook sometimes. I got a friend, a waiting list of about a thousand people, <laughs> sorry, uh, to friend me, but but I post all the time on that. Um, you can check out Outrage on Webtoon, download the app or go to webtoon.com and each chapter has a message board after it. So you can interact immediately and engage immediately with the story and with the creators because Riley and I, Riley Brown and I are there all the time. Um, and brand new series that I'm involved in uh, for a little bit at least is the, the the new Nightwing series coming out from DC. Issue 51 came out this week. I'm scripting off of our old buddy, Mr. Scott Lobdell's plots. And uh, Dick Grayson's my favorite character in comics and has been since 1967. So here I am scripting a series where he's not Dick Grayson anymore. So <laughs> I, I, am, I, I implore people who want to hate it and people who want to like it and people who just want to be curious about it to check it out. And I, I am giving no promises as to where it's going to go or how long I'm going to be on it. All I'm going to say is that it will be a very interesting ride on an issue by issue basis. That, nice. that is great. Now, Adam, uh, real quick, where can people uh, where can people find you? Guys, you can always follow me on Twitter at Arthur Stacy and new pages of Bish and Jubes Attack on the Mansion are coming out every Monday uh, at adamrec.tumblr.com. Zach, where can people find you? Everyone can find everything at xavierfiles.com. It's where all the stuff always is. You've heard the spiel 60 plus times at this point. You can also go to twitter.com and look up at Xavier Files. Uh, that about does it. Fabian, thank you so much again. It's been an absolute joy to have you on. 
I appreciate it, guys. You guys were both great and uh, really, really interesting, uh, enjoyable, uh, and challenging questions, and I appreciate that tremendously. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, everyone, until next time, this has been Battle of the Atom. We hope you survived the experience. Get it!